Okay, so we've been studying the book of Daniel, and we've been working through all sorts of different topics. If you've been with us the last three weeks, you've been learning these. If you've missed any of those, I encourage you to listen or watch this because we have worked through just so many lessons in the course of three chapters, and then today's the fourth. So let's just say it's probably 12 different takeaways. Any one of those is, is an impactful devotional or challenge in our walk with the Lord. And any one of those you could meditate on, reflect on, think about, journal out, and today is no different. What's unique about today, this chapter, compared to everything else in the Bible, it is written by a man that historically, and we'll see, we'll walk through this a little bit, but historically, he's a pagan king. But his testimony, his mini-biography, is captured here in chapter 4. It's written from his perspective. In first person, he goes third person because he's telling a story at one point, but this is his little chronicle. He wrote it out, and Daniel, who compiled much of this and and maybe others to some degree, they saw it fit to include it in this chapter. Now, this, unlike everything else, everything else you might read, uh, like we did the book of Luke, here you have Luke. I mean, like he's walking with Paul, and uh, and he knows the, the ways of Christ, and he writes all these things out, And then you have all these other guys. They're writing their stories, and they're godly men, possibly women who are writing, manly men, and all that stuff, and scribes and all that. In this case, you've got King Nebuchadnezzar writing his take. So let's read his story here. What we're going to do is work through this. uh, I might make some comments, but to the degree I can, I want us to read it almost as if he was here telling this testimony to us. In our case, we have it written. But I want you to listen to this. Listen for his perspective. Listen, again, if you've been with us for the last few weeks, you would have, you would have, um, you'll notice this contrast. The last few weeks, we've read about how ruthless he has been. We've read about how he has been um, incredibly rash uh, or impulsive, uh, how as a world leader, the dominant world leader of the time. And now we have his testimony. So it starts off this way, Daniel 4, verse 1. We're going to read this whole thing, and then we'll have some takeaways. I'm curious for yourself, too, as you're, as you're reading, just make a note. If you have, your, if you have a pen or, or whatever, if you like to take notes this way, take a note of, like, certain uh, one or two different takeaways. We'll, we'll look at these at the end, but I want us to read this story. So it says um, in, in Daniel 4, verse 1, King Nebuchadnezzar, to all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth. Peace be multiplied to you. It has seemed good to me to show the signs and the wonders that the Most High God has done for me. How great are his signs. How mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and his dominion endures from generation to generation. Right right out, out of the gate here, he begins with a praise and, and uh, then he goes into the story. He said, I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house and prospering in my palace. I saw a dream that made me afraid. This is a second dream. This guy dreams, serious dreams. And he says, and the visions of my head alarmed me. So I made a decree that all the wise men of Babylon should be brought before me, that they might make known to me the interpretation of the dream. Then the magicians, the enchanters, the Chaldeans, the astrologers, they came in and they told me, uh, they, they, they told, and I told them the dream. But they could not make known to me its interpretation. At last, Daniel came in before me, he who was named Belshazzar, after the name of my God, and in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. And I told him the dream, saying, O Belshazzar, chief of the magicians, because I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in you, and that no mystery is too difficult for you, 
tell me the visions of my dream that I saw and their interpretation. The vision of my head as I lay in bed were these. I saw, and behold, a tree in the midst of the earth, and its height was great. The tree grew and became strong, and its top reached to heaven, and it was visible to the end of the whole earth. Its leaves were beautiful, and its fruit abundant, and in it was food for all. The beasts of the field found shade under it, and the birds of the heavens lived in the branches, and all flesh were fed from it. He continues, I saw in the vision of my head as I lay in bed, and behold, a watcher, a holy one, came down from heaven. He proclaimed aloud and said thus, chop down the tree and lop off its branches, strip off its leaves and scatter its fruit. Let the beasts flee from under it and the birds from its branches. But leave the stump of its roots in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze amid the tender grass of the field. Let him be wet with the dew of heaven. Let his portion be with the beasts in the grass of the earth. Let his mind be changed from a man's, and let a beast's mind be given to him. And let seven periods of time pass over him. The sentence is by the decree of the watchers, the decision by the holy, or by, by the word of the holy ones, to the end that the living may know that the most high rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will, and sets it over the lowliest of men. All right, that's the dream. Boom, that's quite the dream. Verse 18, this dream I, King Nebuchadnezzar, saw, and you, O Belshazzar, tell me the interpretation, because all the wise men of my kingdom are not able to make known to me the interpretation, but you are able, for the spirit of the holy gods is in you. And if you recall in verse, uh, or chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar had another dream, probably like 30 years before this, and he's, uh, uh, and Daniel was able to tell the dream and also interpret it. Well, let's continue with the story. Verse 19, Then Daniel, whose name was Belshazzar, was dismayed for a while, and his thoughts alarmed him. The king answered and said, Belshazzar, let not the dream or the interpretation alarm you. Well, Belshazzar, he answered and said, My Lord, may the dream be for those who hate you and its interpretation for your enemies. In other words, this is an awful dream. I wish this was one of the other kings that you're fighting, not you yourself, right? Well, here we go. The tree, this is verse 20, the tree you saw, which grew and became strong so that its top reached to heaven, and it was visible to the end of the whole earth, whose leaves were beautiful, and its fruit abundant, and in which all was food for all, under which beasts of the field found shade, and in whose branches the birds of the heaven lived. It is you, O king. You have grown and become strong. Your greatness has grown and reaches to heaven, and your dominion to the ends of the earth. And because the king saw a watcher, a holy one, coming down from heaven, saying, chop the down the tree and destroy it, but leave the stump of its roots in the earth, bound with the band of iron and bronze, in the tender grass of the field, and let him be wet with the dew of heaven, and let his portion be with the beasts of the field, till seven periods of time pass over him. This is the interpretation, O king. It is a decree of the Most High, which has come upon my lord the king, that you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. You shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and you shall be wet with the dew of heaven, and seven periods of time shall pass over you, till you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. And it was commanded to leave the stump 
of the roots of the tree, your kingdom shall be, well, let me reread this here. And, and as it was commanded to leave the stump of the roots of your tree, your kingdom shall be confirmed for you from the time that you know the heaven rules. Therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed, that there may be perhaps or, uh, a lengthening of your prosperity. All right, so that's, that's the dream, and that is the interpretation of the dream. Now, the story continues. I wish he was here to tell us in person how this played out, right? It would be even more colorful and in better detail than I could, than I would be like reading. Uh, verse 28, he says, all this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. At the end of 12 months, he was walking on the roof of his royal palace of Babylon. Some have estimated he's walking around near the falling gardens, you know, the hanging gardens, the ancient wonders of the world, looking out among his kingdom, massive kingdom, massive walls, just quite the sight that he has uh, in his perspective, built up and established in the ancient world. And listen to his words. He tells himself, verse 30, the king uh, answered and said, is not this great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? Listen to this. While the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven. O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken, the kingdom has departed from you. That reminds me just in this moment of uh, how Peter was told he would betray Jesus in the middle of the night while he's being um, arrested and beaten up and uh, about to be crucified. And he's like, I'm not going to do that. Well, then as it happens, he, 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 um, he denies Christ, right, three times. And the third time, it's like the rooster crows, like, boom. Oh, that was that moment that I was told was going to happen. For Nebuchadnezzar, it was a year before that this played out. For Peter, it was a few hours before. Nonetheless, let's continue. So it shall be taken, uh, departed from you. And you shall be driven, verse 32, you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. And you shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and seven periods of time shall pass over you. Uh, most people see that as seven years. Until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. Immediately, the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from among men and ate grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair grew as long as eagle's feathers and his nails were like bird's claws. Well, it continues. Last section of the story. At the end of the days, right, this period of time, seven years, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me. I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand. Or say to him, what have you done? At the same time, my reason returned to me, and for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty and splendor, it also returned to me. My counselors and my lords, they sought me, and I was established in my kingdom, and still more greatness was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven, for his works are right, and his ways are just, and those who walk in pride, he is able to humble." All right, that is the chapter for us today. Wow, that's quite the chapter. It takes a good chunk of our time to read. 
Wow, it's almost 10 o'clock. We have a wonderful passage to talk about. I would love to frame this more, but for the sake of just hitting us between the eyes, let's just go through all the different things. So when I look at this text, maybe for you, you see uh, a story or two that stands out to you, and, and, and there are those. So did you happen to see some of these? Did you happen to see in this story the value that Daniel gave to the kingdom by being a God follower in this place. So, so in other words, think of it this way. Uh, he, he wasn't a Christian yet because Christ hadn't died on the cross. But there is deep value, a principle for us, deep value of being a Christian witness in a awful, pagan, godless setting or culture or workplace or school. For us, as we read this, we're reminded that Daniel was positioned in this place, and now he's probably about 50 years old or so, and here he is in this workplace, in this dynamic, and he hasn't abandoned it. He hasn't left it and, and, uh, and gone off to do his own thing or established his own, like, I don't know, outside thing. God has positioned him within this kingdom, and he is using him in this way. And friends, very similar for us. God has all of you, whether it's in your neighborhood or your workplace or the school, He's allowing you to be a Christian witness in these places. And you, may, you might be the only Christian there. And there will be these times where there will be the tragedy or there will be the scary dream or anything in between in which somebody will come to you and say, I, I don't know what to do with this, but I know that the God of the holy gods, right? Like however they might word it in their own perspective, similar to Nebuchadnezzar, he lives in you. And you'd be thinking Romans 8, 9, yes, the spirit of God dwells within me. And they'll say something along the lines of, I need your help. What is happening here? And you're able to either pray with them, talk with them, give godly truth that pierces all the different fuzziness and chaos of their own world or their life. That happens time and time again. One of the first times I ever encountered this was when I was in high school and I was a freshman and one of our classmates got in a fight that night in town and he was murdered. And it was awful and um, just tragic for all of us as students. And friends who I did sports with and other things, I went to a public school, they came to us and they said, uh, I need prayer. And I'm like, you're a Christian. We all know this. Haven't cared a whole upbringing, and now we do. Can you offer me some sort of uh, solace for all this pain that I'm feeling? My cousin was killed, my friend was killed, and all the different relationships there. Same for us. Let's avoid this idea of Christian escapism in which we want to just leave this uh, areas of society that need a Christian witness. It is good for us to be there. You know, you may not be in Kenya like Neil and the whole team are right now, but you are in fill in the blank area and God can use you there. So that's, that's one takeaway I see. Wonderful that Daniel is there and present. He's able to give this advice now in his 50s or so. Another takeaway, did you notice the extent of God's loving pursuit? Here in Nebuchadnezzar, he's a meathead for decades as a leader, and yet God hasn't given up on him. This shows the character of God. Jeremiah 31.3 has this verse. The Lord appeared to him from far away, or from far away and, and I have loved you with an everlasting love, therefore I have continued my faithfulness to you. There's this... There's this uh, underlying attribute of God throughout Scripture, and that is God's re relentless, or unrelentless, unre relentless, I don't know, his enduring <laughs> uh, pursuit for those whom he wants to display his glory and his 
his presence, and they are able to respond to it. I, I think of this worship song, I love it, and the phrasing goes like this, you won't relent until you have it all. You won't relent until you have it all. God pursues us. So that's one, another takeaway. Uh, a third one is this idea of repentance. Here, Nebuchadnezzar has been given 12 months to get his life right. Daniel tells him here in verse 27, uh, you know, if you break off your sins and practice righteousness, break off your iniquities and show mercy to the oppressed, then perhaps there'll be a lengthening of your prosperity until this is going to happen. Well, Nebuchadnezzar, he had a chance and he didn't. And for us, we must be faced with questions like this. How much longer will we live in defiance of God Almighty? Or how much longer will we delay in surrendering to God? Yes, God's mercy is, is long-suffering. His love is steadfast. But his, he is jealous for his glory. He will not be mocked. And he wants to make himself manifest in your life. And so today might be the last time your heart hears the voice of God or the truth of God's word until you are calloused too far from responding to it in a certain way, in a, in, a, in a component of your heart or your life as a whole when it comes to belief in Christ. And so a phrase to, to ask yourself is, what's it going to take? What's it going to take to get your attention? What's it going to take to get your worship or to get your surrender? Whatever it is, we all have these windows of repentance, and usually it's, 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 it's quite a while. And if you are in that right now, you, will you respond in a way that honors God and gives away whatever's grappling on your heart, grappling on your heart there? Another takeaway, and this is probably the main thrust of the text, just as, 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 as a unit. You know, we're always asking, what, what is the Word of God saying here? There's always amazing takeaways you can find throughout any passage. But, you know, what's the main point, point here? Well, it's really uh, uh, humility versus pride and this contrast there. In fact, this whole story is a testimony of this proverb. Some, several of you heard this, Proverbs 16, 18. Pride goes before destruction, a haughty spirit before a fall. And so here you have King Nebuchadnezzar exuding hubris. Have you ever heard that term? This like inner pride, man-centered. He's done it, self-glory. He's looking at his kingdom. It is a great example of how uh, he's just viewing himself greater than what God's doing. And I'll tell you, friends, we look at Nebuchadnezzar's story and think, well, you know, I don't have a kingdom. I don't have, I don't have a massive hanging gardens, you know, if you're a guy and your wife likes, you know, you're like, my wife wants me to make hanging gardens, haven't done it. That's just like, it's not going to be as grand as what Nebuchadnezzar had. And we might look at this and think that's just not us, but the reality is we are consistently kind of in a place where we allow our pride to get in front of our walk with the Lord. A moment ago, we were singing that song, uh, and we said, well, I, I will not boast in anything, no gifts, no power, no wisdom, but I'll only boast in Christ and his death and his resurrection. I would also add just his daily grace at work in our life, and we can allow that to happen. And so if you're allowing pride, you know, one of the best ways to, uh, to uh, identify or assess, is there an area of pride in my life in this, in this area at work or with friends or at home? Or well, look, look for the exhibited behavior of judgmentalism this negative critique of others and how they respond in the situation that you have where you're like, I wouldn't do that because I'm better than that or I just don't act like that and, and you, you think it's your own. So, so maybe you look at other parents and you're like, I wouldn't parent like that. Look at those knuckleheads. 
Uh, and it's like, all right, well, um, that, that's judgmentalism, and that could be pride. Uh, you could have this in the workplace. I wouldn't act like this, like my employee, uh, em- employees or coworkers act, because, you know, they're just, whatever, fill in the blank. Some sort of negative critique of that. We see this in, in school. We see this in, uh, in just daily driving. You're driving, you're like, look at that person, how they drive. That's awful. Uh, it's like, well, that's like one of the lowest tiers. Uh, we see this in church world all the time. Uh, several of you are Christians, and so like you've just you've been in different churches over the course of your life, or you've seen different churches. And uh, we look at church leaders, and we're like, ah, I wouldn't act like this. I'm like, really? How about we give you multi-million-dollar um, bank accounts and influence, and see how your flesh handles that? Because I'm pretty sure it's not going to be very good. Because everybody else thinks they wouldn't fall either, and they all fell. So. That, that just we tend to think with judgmentalism. And if that's the case, use that as a way to diagnose, is there uh, pride there in your heart? Or are you actually recognizing this is God's grace at work in my life? He's the one that's allowed me to get where I am. It's his resources. It's his strength, even for today, for me to wake up, for me to walk out, for me to gather, and all that stuff. That's one, another one. We're just flying through stuff. This is crazy. It's a, it's a weird morning for me right now because I'm still trying to process the fact that I like my property more than my heart for the Lord. <laughs> no, you laugh. I'm, I'm like really disturbed by that. It's a, it's a holy, I'm, I'm trying to figure that out. Um, it's not good, friends. I will lose it. You know what I mean? Like this is the story. This is literally the story. Here I am at the top of my hill, like look at my land. And it's like, well, the Lord would take it right there. Um, I, I, a couple of different things. Right, three more for you. Um, one is that God's kingdom is eternal. So God rules more than the mightiest earthly leader, whether it's Nebuchadnezzar or whether it's today's leaders. We've already talked through this a little bit in light of the other chapters, but listen to Isaiah 40, 17. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are accounted by him as less than nothing and emptiness, right? We were already even singing this. You have no rival. You have no equal. Now and forever you reign. Yours is the kingdom and the glory and name above all names. And that is such an anchoring worldview for us to have. For others, they, I mean, they're just so discombobulated by the events of the world and different world leaders and rise and fall of kingdoms. And for me, I look at it and go, well, I don't like when kingdoms rise and fall in ways that are destructive or, um, or, or, or just murderous and destroying their societies. But I do know who sits on the throne of the universe. And that does allow there to be this baseline rather than uh, more of a humanistic baseline and things like that. So that's, that's one. Uh, another one is how God uses this dream to work his purposes. What a unique thing. You know, does God use dreams today? Well, sure. The thing is, most of us have, like, weird dreams. Like, I have dreams like Neil and I are riding dinosaurs, like, around, so I'm like, oh, it's, you know, like, what is that about? That's interesting. Um, and there's also, I do have, like, real dreams at times where I'm thinking, what is, well, the first thing I do, I wake up, Lord, what was the meaning of that one? And he's like, that's funny, Adam, you, you're acting no different than so many others. And let me just remind us of this, when it comes to dreams, when it comes to trying to understand these dreams, most of us have a fascination with the unknown of the dream, and they might, we might want to pursue what this is. And we live in total neglect of what we already do know to be true, and that's God's word. So if your heart's not saturated in scripture, you better be real careful before you give all your resources to figuring out some sort of dream. It's like, you know, uh, that's the unknown. How about we focus on what is known, and that is this area right here. And so God, he might be saying something through a dream, but I'll tell you this, he is saying something in his word every day if you read it, right? So there's that takeaway. That's crazy, too. And then the last one for us, and I think this is specific for us as a church family uh, when it comes to just 
this text, what it reminds us of, what it teaches us. Again, it may not be the primary focus or the primary um, application in which would be like the role of humility in our life. And that's probably what a lot of uh, preachers or um, writers would say about this chapter. But the one for us, just pastorally for us as a congregation, it's this reminder, God can save anyone. God can save anyone. He, he, that which is impossible from our perspective is very possible for God. And that could be for you. You could be sitting here thinking, I just cannot be saved. I've just, I've sinned too great. I've walked too far away from God. I am not worthy of it. God does not want me in anything along those lines. You could be thinking that. That is so easy for us to fall into those traps. And yet we have this story to remind us, no, no, no. God's love is steadfast and it's relentless and he's pursuing you. If God can save Nebuchadnezzar, who was a murderous dictator, then he could save you. And that leads to kind of a, 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 a theological quandary in this text, and that is, was Nebuchadnezzar saved? And it appears that he was. Some disagree uh, and say, no, uh, he wasn't, and they have different reasons. I look at this text and say, you know, taking it at face value, at the end of his life, he says what, this last verse I, Nebuchadnezzar, I praise and I extol and I honor the king of heaven. I'll tell you, it is, it is hard to think that the posture of his heart is able to say those words and still be in defiance before the Lord. And even concludes, for all his works are right, his ways are just, and those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. There are several uh, of us in our own lives uh, or other celebrities who have walked through a life of defiance to God, and then they have these sort of words, and it reveals a change, a transformation. Friends, we're reminded that God can save anyone, and it's not by our works. It's not by what we bring to God. It's not by what we bring to the table. Think of Ephesians 2, 8, 9, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. These miraculous conversions can take place in, uh, just across the board. Uh, recently, I was reading this, this biography. I briefly mentioned it last week in this service, but not the next. So if you go to whichever one, you may have heard some of this. But I've been reading about this guy named John Patton, and he was a missionary about 150 years ago in the South Pacific. And he arrives, and... People didn't want him to go because the last missionaries there were killed and eaten by the people on the island. And um, he had a thriving ministry where he was. I believe it was in Scotland. And people said, you just can't leave. There's good work here. But he couldn't let go of this call and this need for these people to get saved. So he and his wife go over. His wife gets pregnant, gives birth. And then she and the baby end up dying like in the first week. And uh, here, here he is alone. From his family, he had a, he had another guy that was there too, and he is begging the Lord to move. And I'll tell you, what's amazing is in time, God answered those prayers. My favorite part of his whole biography was he prayed the entire island would get saved, and it did. Everybody on the island got saved. Everybody placed their faith. And so he even said this at one point. And I might read this uh, in these future times when we take communion just to remind us. But he said this, for three years, we had toiled and prayed and taught for this. At the moment when I put the bread and wine into those dark hands, once stained by, with the blood of cannibalism, but now stretched out 
to receive and partake the emblems and the seal of the Redeemer's love. He's talking about communion. He wrote, I had a foretaste of the joy of glory that well nigh broke my heart to pieces. I shall never taste a deeper bliss till I gaze on the glorified face of Jesus himself. He's describing this, the beauty of being able to participate in communion with these people he had lived among. This sort of story combined with Nebuchadnezzar's life transformation, two different settings. One's a whole island, uh, people who've never heard of Christ. One's Nebuchadnezzar who has his presence with Daniel and small little interactions with Yahweh's abilities. Both of them re-inspire me that God is working. He is alive. He is changing lives. And so a moment ago, we sang that song, God of Revival. And I am challenged with questions like this. Do you really believe that God wants to awaken hearts, that God wants to save, that chains will be broken, that there is no prison wall God cannot break through, that there's no mountain he cannot move, that nothing is impossible for God. And I'll tell you, the, the, the place in my heart, it is, it is, God is just at work. I mean, you guys are sitting there, but I'm sitting here like, I wish this was more like a conversation around a fire because I could be, uh, I just would feel less awkward because it's a monologue right now. But there's this dynamic where uh, between what I said already with like the testimony of Columbia and then this passage, I find myself saying, Lord, I believe that you are still at work in our town and that you could save our whole county the way that you saved this island um, in the South Pacific. I do believe, but I really need you to help my unbelief because there are parts of me where it's hard to, to, to believe that which I tangibly do not see. Like I understand God can work. I understand that he can work in some of the people in our town who are just so far from God. You would think that person will never be saved. And I'm telling you, in light of this story with Nebuchadnezzar and this island and other stories, that is not true at all. Whether it's like my, uh, I've got three kids, the middle one's three. She's uh, awesome and slowly like growing. And, and you know, she's in a Christian home. She's learning Christian values. My prayer and hope is that she'll come to faith in Christ. But whether it's Atlas or whether it is somebody in our town who's just like one of our murderous, drunk neighbors. Both are in desperate need of God's salvation. And the impossible and the need for a miracle in their life of salvation is, is at work and, and they are both able to respond to that. And so I want to challenge us with something when it comes, comes to these lines. Uh, two months ago, two and a half months ago, I, I challenged you to uh, prayerfully identify who are six people you can be sharing the gospel with on a regular basis. And several of you responded. You wrote them on cards. I have them in a basket. And, and it's a wonderful little demonstration about hundreds of people in this community who we want to see respond to the gospel. And I want to bring this back up to remind you, who are those that God has placed around in your life that you are praying for and you are trying to find ways to share the gospel with? If you have grown discouraged in the last two months saying, you know, I've been trying, I've been talking, that is a closed door. Well, so it was a closed door in Nebuchadnezzar's life to get his attention. And I'll tell you, my, my, my encouragement to you, do not give up because the impossible can still be possible in their lives. They're the people in my own life who I've been like working with. Man, it's like, there's been no movement. Well, you know what? Just continue to press on. And there's this understanding there. And so, um, Trent, you and the team, as you guys come on up here to close us out in this worship song, I, I challenge us 
to respond with sort of, sort of a blend of things. Uh, one is this uh, mindset and this surrender with any of those other takeaways I had already mentioned. And I'm not going to reread all those. But if one of those is just you know, sitting in your gut a little bit, take that to the Lord. Talk through that with the Lord, whatever might be going on. And then the other one is us collectively as a corporation having this genuine response that God is moving. He's moving in hearts. He's, he's stirring. He's awakening. And there are those who are so far from God. And again, anybody who's not a Christian is in need of salvation and, and all that. But there are those so, from, so, so far from the Lord that in our sin, in our fleshly minds that we have written off saying, you know, I have prayed for decades for my spouse and they're still not saved. I just, I'm, I'm, I have lost I've just, like, lost faith that that can happen. Or, again, a coworker or a neighbor or whatever that might look like, a child who's just been wayward. You're thinking, wow, I ran from God, but that person, I mean, or in my case, he's really running from God. I mean, so far. Is there any hope? Is there, my, my response to you is yes, there is. God is at work. Do not give, so do not give up hope there. And so let's respond with this, this sense of worship, this prayerful mindset, and this, this wonderful joy that God is at work like with Nebuchadnezzar, we can trust this, we can have faith, and we can continue to walk in a way where we, where, where we can see this, all right? So let me pray for us.